Hi, this is Sonia Walger, and welcome to Bookish, a podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this episode is my dear friend, Chris Weitz. Chris is a film producer, screenwriter, author, actor, and director. He and his brother Paul wrote a little-known movie called American Pie, and also together adapted and directed About a Boy, which went on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. He directed New Moon from the Twilight series, the film adaptation of The Golden Compass, and co-wrote Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So a total slacker then. He's married to one of my dearest friends, and together they have three kids, at least one of whom I firmly intend to marry off to at least one of mine. We sat in his spare room to talk about books. I'm so grateful to you for being my guinea pig. I'm happy to be here. I yes. So here's the thing. Talking about books is very difficult for me, right? I, because I, I've been asked to be in book clubs a few times, and nothing yeah. is more painful to me than the idea of talking about books. Yeah. Uh, especially in a sort of a collegial nice way like yeah. the only way I'm used to talking about books is from you know uh, is from uh, tutorials in Cambridge yeah. where the the aim was to be as cruel and insinuating as possible right. towards your interlocutors right so to actually be nice and talk about books and agree about them there's the thing I sort of don't care what other people think about books right to be honest and so I don't see why anybody should care what, what I think, think about them. That being said, here we are. Let's do this. No, but I think this is the point because when I came up with this idea, I my thought had been, I don't want to make this an Oxford tutorial, which is also my experience of talking mm. about books. I don't want this to be a dissection of what makes the book work. Uh, that which is why I was really specific in saying. I hope, I want the books that shaped you, not necessarily your favourite ones, not necessarily the ones that you think are, you know, the peak of of literature, but the ones that sort of made you who you are at different formative moments. They're not even necessarily the ones that you would show off about in... In a, in, at a dinner party for having read. I mean, if anything, like, I'll cop to it. My my five books, one of them would be Where the Wild Things Are, Why one not? of them would be Jamie Oliver's first cookbook, and one of That's them would good. be Gina Ford's Guide to Contented Little Baby, How to Make Your Child... Shut up. ...go to fucking sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those would be three of my five, and I'm... And I'm yeah. I think of myself as a reader, and, and so... That's how lowbrow I am. No, that's good. Well, yeah, you can't go wrong with where the wild things are. I think because it's well, it's one of the books that you can bear to read to children. It's also very short. Yeah. So you finish the story quickly, yeah. and you can say, "Now it's time to sleep." And now you're out. Uh, I actually think it's a great book in that it sort of embraces the weirdness and uh, hostility and aggression of childhood. I agree, and the existence. darkness of it. The, yeah. Like serious non-sequitur darkness of childhood is mm. what I love about it. My dad got so fed up of reading me that book uh, that he did spin-offs that lasted for <laughs> about ten years. Fan fiction Literally. Of, uh, yeah. of Max. And Max stuff. had an great. uncle who was a pirate and the adventures of Max's uncle the pirate. My dad, I still have those flimsy, thin, blue airmail letters. Oh, but when my fantastic. dad ran out of news to tell me or ran out of things to invent to tell me, then he would write me another story about Max's That's pirate great. uncle. Yeah. Well, I used to think that I looked like Max, so that helped as well. Oh, yes. Minus a wolf suit. Yeah, and um, and I also liked In the Night Kitchen, since we're on the subject uh, of Maurice yeah, Sendak. Yeah. And in Park, as there was nudity, you can see the kid's butt at one point. <laughs> and that, to me, as a child, was so exciting and it's weird. Great. 
uh, yeah, and then getting sort of baked into that into airplane. That, into that weird pie, yeah. Uh, this is, these are actually, you know what? So now I'm, I'm coming up with other Come books. up with it, yeah, go Max for it. and Moritz. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's, no, it's from that? the um, terrifying German children's uh, sort of school of children's yeah. literature. Is it uh, the Stroll Peter one, the one where they cut your thing It's a bit like Stroll Peter. It's a bit more realistic, I think. Uh-huh. And the Max and Moritz are these two... My, my dad, who, who was German, uh, gave it to me and my brother. Uh, two pranksters, and they pull all kinds of pranks. Uh, and and uh, all through the book, as they pull pranks that you're meant to enjoy, and they do horrible things like stick June bugs into uh, a guy's uh, yeah, nightcap and things uh-huh. like that. Just awful, awful things. Um, without any regard for decency or human life or animal life, then eventually they themselves are baked into a uh, baked into a cake that then is broken up into little pieces and eaten by ducks. So it's, wow, yeah, awful things. So this is a finite children. story. This yeah, is not and it's not <laughs> funny. You know how German humor is kind of not funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Strawpeter was not funny. Yeah. That doesn't sound funny. That sounds formative. That that's true. So that that's now an addendum I'm, I'm getting, to the I'm fight. slipping in extra books. That's yeah. right. We're allowed to do that. There's oh no... my god! And I just thought of another one. Okay, What's another so one? No, no, no. Go okay. for it. I love it. Uh, but uh, so this is the template, right? We're, this is the pilot episode. We're this is the pilot, but okay. we can do exactly. So it's a little loosey goosey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dolores' book of Greek myths, which of oh. course I should have remembered because um, yes. So my uh, my mother is a, sort of a lapsed Catholic. Uh-huh. My dad was an atheist, and so we were raised with no. Um, sort of Christ, Judeo-Christian morality right. other than what sort of, uh, you know, just uh, slipped in through everyday behavior. Uh, this, but, can I just say, you and Paul have the most exquisite manners of anyone I've ever met. <laughs> so it's all by rote. Somehow, though, no, know, quite a no, lot got slipped in, but anyway. There's no notion of, uh, a, a, of an afterlife to like be held accountable <laughs> for uh, your, your behavior. It's more like my parents would just give me a hard time. But... Um, we did have Diller's book of Greek myths, right? Which mm. was, and that made a lot of sense to me. The behavior of the of the gods in that looked to me like the way that people, the, the way that the world worked. Really. And and when I heard about the way that the world was supposed to work via religious friends of mine, whether it be sort of um, Jewish kids mm. or or uh, Christian kids who went to church, I sort of thought, well, I see where you're going with this, but. Um, <laughs> It doesn't necessarily harmonize with with the behavior of people I'm seeing around me. But right. what does make sense is the way that Zeus behaved and the way that in the um, petty, jealous, yeah, that vindictive. Aphrodite behaved. Yeah, petty, jealous, vindictive. But they also had, you know, they had good taste. Right. Uh, they liked good stuff. They liked um, ambrosia and nectar and stuff like that. And so I, I kind of got that. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I never thought of that. They are. They're very um, human the Greek gods in their ways, I think, yeah. in terms of their rarefied they are, um, aesthetic. They're, and maybe they're, they're sort of like very, the, the very wealthy, or the 1%, right? right. They, they have a lot of power. Uh, they have some free time. They have some free time. They have some really good dressing up costumes. Yeah. So I, I think that was kind of formative. And, but that's and, interesting because you're saying that that was formative in a morality way or in, or in an absence of morality, in, in some sort of like grounding you with a, a code i guess part of the well i would say actually no i th- I would like to think we had a, a, a i had a code that was a cut above the behavior of the gods and Dolores greek myths <laughs> but in as much as you can say well 
well, part of uh, the great the, the great thing about one of the great things about books is that you feel you are not so alone in the way that you perceive yeah. the universe. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that can be uh, in the form of gaining empathy through these kind of um, mock-ups of human situations that otherwise you might not be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is an argument in favor of the novel, uh, right? Like sometimes I, I think I sort of encounter the notion that you should only read nonfiction because that is truth and novels are made up oh, stories. And you encounter that notion in yourself? Or well, yeah, in others work? and in myself too. I, okay. I kind of, I, I kind of uh, fade in and out of feeling that way. And mm. then I think, well, actually, it's good. You know, what, all we're doing all the time is modeling these uh, possibilities of human behavior and experience. And so novels, when, when they are good, uh, sort of expose us to other possibilities that we may not have conceived of. Or they... Uh, kind of echo things that we believe ourselves, but sometimes it's also just that the notion that you that somebody else sees things the way that you do, mm. or that or that something makes sense to you. So I suppose that would be the Dolores Greek myths of it all. Mm. That I thought, well, um, maybe it was a very early childhood exposure to the notion that um, you know the strong do what they will and the weak do what they must. Mm. Uh, no, that didn't necessarily mm. mean that it was right. Right. But, uh, I, you know it. it, it it, even that early in life, it seemed to me that uh, things Think often that worked way. out that way. Who gave them to you? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was my parents. Yeah. Um, Were they I read think, to you or did you read them alone? Uh, both. Mm. Uh, my mom was the, the reader to her. Uh, because I, I, I remember her reading that. I remember her reading The Hobbit. Uh, when I was little, as and she well. was an actress, right? Mm-hmm. So was she good at it? Was that she was very good at it? She yeah. To life? yeah, yeah. She she has a lovely voice. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, she was she was good at it, and so a lot of my early pleasant memories of books are are from her. Um, I think that my mom had probably had Dolores Greek Mess when she was a kid. Oh, okay, uh, but not that ed- you don't remember having that edition. No, that not that specific edition. Yeah, no. that's lovely. I loved the Greek myths. I thought they were the Greeks and the Roman myths. They got. Let's, rem, let's stop at this point and remind you that you have a daughter called Athena. Was that part yeah. of that? Did, did yeah, this? probably comes uh, uh, comes from that. That is to say, I was uh, of a very defensive uh, uh, attitude towards uh, naming children, and I just didn't want them to be made fun of. Uh, Mercedes, my wife, pushed the the envelope a bit, and Athena was within the acceptable range, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the union of the two possibilities. I still think Athena really demands a lot of a kid, uh, um, maybe not a kid, but but when you're about fourteen, that's yeah, gonna, you, your being Athena, Athena delivers. Could be, she delivers. She's, she'll have to. Babes. Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, I'm not worried about that. Athena's wiser than uh, we shall see. Uh, but yes, that that um, that comes into it. Uh, I mean, also, uh, eventually, when I was in London, uh, took A-levels, and one of my A-levels, I basically did all these sort of artsy-fartsy A-levels to avoid math and science, and and ancient history is one of them. Yeah. I do like Athens. It's a good, uh, they have their ups and downs, but... It's a good place. Yeah, Yeah. good good place. Um, I want to get to your first official book. Yeah, okay. Which doesn't mean we can't say way into others, but when I asked, I sent Chris a list of, um, or an outline of what the show would be and uh, asked for a heads up on what the five books that he might want to talk about were. And the first one on the list was um, Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien which is the naval adventure. And mm-hmm. it's a part of a trilogy, right? Or were there many of them? Oh, no, there, there are something it? like 21 books in right. the series. So if you were to take it as one novel, or, uh, it would be, you know, longer than um, 
uh, in search of lost time or uh, any, <laughs> anything else that you can think of. Did you read them all? I did read them all. I've really? read them all at least once. I think really? I've read them all twice, and now I'm listening to them again on audiobook. Um, and, because um, of Sebastian? No, no, I just it it it, pu- it puts me in a very comfortable, uh, happy really? place. But so what you would think of is that it's all sort of um, uh, sailing around and and uh, and firing cannons and stuff. And there is a lot of that, mm-hmm. a lot of that, a lot of different sails and what the sails are doing and all this kind of stuff. But it's actually um, Patrick O'Brien is an incredibly humane uh, author who goes into all aspects of human. Uh, behavior, psychology, emotion, and and it's um, I mean it's very he manages to make it not just about um, kind of homoerotic guys going around killing people, but also women society. Um, right, because that was what I was going to ask was how it seems very very male dominated. I mean, just the era alone, it's a nineteenth century yeah uh, series of of novels. Where's well, the? I said very cleverly. He very early on in the series um, gets his two protagonists, um, Aubrey, who's the sort of bluff, hale, hearty Englishman, and Matcher, and the much more sort of um, uh, um, uh, intellectual, uh, sort of uh, uh, occasionally sinister uh, kind of uh, spy. Not sinister actually, but but secretive. Um, uh, they meet uh, young women who they will um, eventually marry, both of them. Hmm. Uh, and the ins and outs of how they, uh, of the courtship and the long distance courtship sometimes and, and the jealousies and the rivalries mm-hmm. uh, occupies a lot of the books and is as that, well. And is that done through letters? Is that how they... Uh, letters, no but also board, there, right? there, are long period, there are long stretches of time where they're on land and... Um, and uh, you know Jack Aubrey is kind of is no good on land. He right. he's very capable at sea, but he's kind of hopeless um, in London or uh, in the country. Um, is is did the naval part of it? Was it the sea part? Was it the was it the being? That appeals. Yeah. Is it what is it that it, it is beautifully written? He's right. an amazing prose stylist. Right. Um, it. Is um, it's a sort of um, series of variations on this theme of the two characters and mm-hmm. how they interact. Uh, it is much deeper than you would think, mm-hmm. uh, based upon you know this sort of uh, elevator pitch of it. Right. The naval stuff is pretty great. The the world of uh, of uh, the, the British uh, Navy in the Napoleonic era is bizarre right. and and the uh, technical stuff doesn't keep you outside it because that's what stuff, I would always feel yeah like. there is you do have to see I it, it's sort of the same thing that I have with descriptions of landscape and yeah. books which yeah. is that I just don't give just a don't fuck care. No, not um, right. and I, 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 I will let those words go into my brain yeah. and then forget about them because I, I really feel as though I can't come to grips with it at all maybe right. it's because I was raised in a city and I don't really have a sense of landscape at all I think the same <laughs> thing kind of <laughs> happens the same thing happens with, with the descriptions of you know the main top cell uh, do you skim read? Do you, are you no, fast I never it? do. I can't. I, really? I read. read. I hear my voice word. in my head. I hear or, or or some somebody's voice in my head. Really, some version of my voice. So I always read very slowly. I read about thirty pages an hour, and this really bothers me. I wish I could read faster, but I lose comprehension if I skim or if I don't hear the sound of a voice in my head, which means that I can only read as fast as I can speak. As you can speak, isn't that interesting? Because I developed the skill, I think, probably at Oxford, to of skim reading, and so oh, I read. Wow. 
I power read. I mean, I really uh, skim. I, I could do that. I don't know that it's 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 useful for scripts. It's useful for mm-hmm. <laughs> just getting a sense of something very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes my husband deeply suspicious when he asks me to read a script of his and edit it. He just thinks you're he not just, asking Yeah, it. he really does. He's just like, you, you didn't. <laughs> and, then, and then I say to him, go and look. You, if you look, I've edited down to your punctuation. I've put in, like, capital letters that you've missed. Like, it That's looks really good. like I haven't... There used to be this um, this ad when I was a kid for the Evelyn Wood speed reading method, which was hilarious. They would show these people kind of looking at a an encyclopedia, mm-hmm. and they would uh, just riffle or rifle whichever one that is through the pages mm-hmm. at an unbelievable rate. Which and and it just seemed like magic. But could they retain then afterwards? Because that's that's I what no I can't do. I have idea. zero retention. Well, here's I mean, the problem: zero. as as you know, when you asked me to come up with five books, I realized that I don't remember what's in these books, even though I'm claiming that they're sort of the formative books of my life. And uh, and what so the, the place I went with this is that that's okay because on some level they sort of sank in on yeah. a cellular, yeah. genetic level. I think that's true. Ma- uh, I, think yeah, that's, I, think I hope so. I, I do. I firmly believe that. I mean, I, Portrait of a Lady would be, I guess, one of my five. And because I reread it regularly because... I am inexplicably devoted to that book. Mm. It's one of the few that I can actually know the names of the main characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a stretch. Right. Even getting Isabel Archer out is, is feels like I deserve a medal right now. So yeah. I'm fully with you. I think these books do... That was why I asked really specifically, like, what are the books that shape rather than the favourite ones? Because mm-hmm. I think in the shaping, there is a forgetting because there is a going in to some cellular right. DNA level that that moulded you or made a choice or a left turn or a, mm-hmm. a kink or a contortion in one that happened uh, right. beyond beyond your choosing almost. That was... Right. That okay, so, yeah, that's good. Well, then, so to explain then why... Uh, uh, Aubrey and Matron, they are sort of my favorite books. Hmm. He might be my favorite author. Hmm. But also, I think uh, Maturin, the character, he is um, he's very secretive. He is, uh, uh, it turns out, he's a, he's a, a spy for uh, the British government. That being said, he is Irish and an Irish uh, nationalist, mm-hmm. and uh, but also a Catalan nationalist. Mm. And his character is immensely curious about everything and everyone. And mm. that uh, while still not not being um, uh, sort of Pollyannish about it, mm. it's also very cynical. Uh, I think that character, you know, there's certain characters that kind of step that 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 exist uh, outside of their context mm. in a way, and and that that one is probably a the the one that influences me. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. so. I would like to think so. Yeah. I'm not yeah. as curious as I would like to be, but. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting when there's actual characters as well as books that that speak to one too. Mm. You know, like like I say, Isabel Archer would be that for me for sure. I think, um, and you you feel a, a mapping onto them that you you don't know if that is either mm-hmm. correct or aspirational. But well, it's kind of like having a crush or or a, a yeah. boy crush or a girl crush. You sort of want to be like them yeah. a bit more, yeah. and um, and that can be useful. I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean. I can segue onto the next do, one because please I do. feel it's Absolutely relevant, sort of, good. Um, because I do think there's an aspect of books that when you when you really fall in love with them or fall in love in the reading, uh, in which they influence your behavior for better and for worse too. Mm-hmm. So Little Dorrit is is where I'm going with this mm-hmm. one, great. Which is um, 
to say, and that sort of stands in, I think it's the biggest exemplar, but it stands in for me for a whole load of 19th century English literature that I read, which which influenced me in a way that I now think is probably not great. Why? Which is in what way? This the, is what, let's just back up to say Little Dorrit was book number two, Charles Dickens, published 1855. Right. So I read it because I remember asking my favourite, uh, uh, one of my favourite, I should say, mm. uh, uh, teachers at St. Paul's in London uh, when I was in the sixth form, which is kind of like uh, high school for Americans, uh, what he thought the greatest book in, in English was, and he hmm. said Little Dorrit. Uh, really? After a little thought. Uh, yeah. After, sorry, after a little thought? Yeah, he did. That, I uh, think he thought for a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, I think there are other contenders but for him, but uh, so then eventually when I, I read it, and I was really, I mean, I've, I've read not all Dickens, but many, and I think Little Dorrit is my favourite. Um, it's the, one of the few I haven't read. Yeah, made me, when I saw it on your list, it's I, pretty it made me groovy. want it's to go prime, look it up. Prime Dickens. I think uh, the characters are somewhere in between human and caricature in some ways uh as are all of his I yeah think. um the you sort of get a sense of a gathering battle of the good and the bad mm-hmm. uh characters uh, around usually an issue that is at first sort of uh, mysterious and it's, um Actually has a lot, a lot in common with telenovelas. I think it's always like somebody who's been robbed of their inheritance <laughs> yes, because sounds... they were a foundling <laughs> child or something like that. Uh, and um, and it's very. Uh, I mean, it's about uh, it, it. It centers around the Marshalsea prison, the uh, debtor's prison, right. and the story behind um, Little Dorrit, who's the daughter of uh, of a man who's been imprisoned for debt. And and I, I I'm not sure I could tell you. Uh, why or what comes of it except that Arthur Clennam is the very upright and decent uh, lawyer who I think he's a lawyer who who uh, looks into the case and falls in love with Little Dorrit who is a a paragon of virtue and Mm -hmm. uh, filial devotion I think the problem and it's all very intoxicating, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and Why? What's and entertaining. The, in what way? Because there is such goodness and badness. And, right. um, uh, and she's presumably imperiled. She is imperiled, through. for sure. Uh-huh. And she is incredibly decent and proper. And there is... Um, you know that they are growing to love one another, but they're holding back. Right. And all of this great kind of uh, romance novel right. sort of stuff, as sure. well as the really fascinating pictures of uh, uh, nooks and crannies of, uh, of Victorian uh, London. Mm. And, of course, uh, Dickens' ability to sort of... to create cliffhangers, to... Uh, to sell a magazine a week. Yeah, absolutely. Um and so that's all great, except I think I took it hook, line, sinker when I was a kid. So when I was about... So sixth form you read this, or later? Yeah, 14 or 15. Right. Uh, and really, I expected uh, everybody to, if not behave uh, superficially the way that mm. they do in Victorian novels. I thought this is the way that, that people worked. Right. Uh, so I was horribly romantic, um, incredibly inclined to be kind of swoony and fall in love with people and, uh-huh. and um, uh, strive in theory to be upstanding and and uh, decent. I wasn't really. This but, all but, sounds incredibly noble. Do you attribute all of this yeah, to early consumption of Dickens? Or do you think I think so, yeah. Dickens anyway? and, and 19th century literature in general. Yeah. Although I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, some 
some trollop would have been a good i wish who i didn't read until later would have been a good antidote to that really yeah because that people are uh uh, well actually i've only read uh in fact uh uh, the way we live now Uh which is fantastic in its own way and is much more um acid about uh human behavior and and then uh you you read the sort of uh french uh version uh of this you know balzac and 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 it's much more cynical. Yeah. Uh, and that would have been a good sort of antidote. But instead, I feel like I wasted a lot of time in early life not seeing things as they were, but wanting things to be the way that I thought they should be. It's interesting because I think we all get exposed to Dickens probably too young in a way. I mean, I, mm. I the same. I remember reading Great Expectations. I think I probably started with that quite young and, and feeling... Similarly, like, he had understood what it was to be a stepchild. He'd understood what it was to lose. He'd understood, mm-hmm. um, you know, yearning in a way that feels very adolescent. Mm-hmm. And yet and he was not writing as an adolescent nor for adolescents. So yeah. there's a, there's a, I, I, I hear you. I think there is I a degree to which we should be re-exposed to Dickens later with slightly more ground under I our think feet. it was... It was commodified towards a sort of uh, Victorian sentimentality mm. above which people were capable of rising or, or, or apart from which people could live their lives. But if you're 14, I mean, it just sets you up for failure in your first <laughs> romantic relationship. But also you as an American being being at school in England, yeah. right? I mean, if, if Dickens is your roadmap, when yeah. you arrive in England in the, what, when was it? Nineteen ninety-four, eighty-five. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a that's a fairly that's a fairly intense map to carry around yeah. for your inner self. Well, I didn't really expect to, you know, run into Magwitch or what have Pip, you. But right, yeah. um, uh, no, I th- really, I, 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 I'm taking it in terms of uh, what, what I mean. I think is in terms of like, sort of. Yeah, the, the girls that I met yeah. uh, at, at age 14 and, and what I uh, wanted them to be right. like, uh, as opposed to just being ordinary 14-year-old girls. Right. Um, that, but that seems to me... That's so, true. That's probably true. Of, like, I'm sure it is. I, I think it probably is, right? I feel like it's such an endearing um, and uh, honest admission to make, because I think that's true of all of us, whether we read Dickens or not, mm. is, is the longing at 14 or 15 for them to be somehow the one yeah which, god forbid they turn out to be sort of literary projections yeah uh, i mean w- w- that is i mean there, there are many uh, sort of situations in life where i realize that my only um uh, frame of reference is from movies or books yeah uh which is okay but you do need to be able to triangulate it with with normal life to some degree to like make an accurate yeah you do and you also need action. to i think that also means that one has to have um be even more vigilant about the impeccability of one's taste than in movies and books. <laughs> if right. that's going to be, yeah. What if that is going to become a guide? Then, then there has to be. You have to be accountable for that. For sure. In a way, which, I yeah. Know, as I get older and have less time and more. But we don't know. We don't know. I mean, imagine if you're heading to prison now. What you would think it would be like, or if you. Not that I intend to, but. Right. But are there any number of situations like that where all I have are received notions or yeah. cliches? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I guess is an argument for nonfiction. Yes, it's oh, well, an argument for which gets you to eminent Victorians. Victorians, which I was about to do hey. anyway. So Eminent Victorians was on your list, which I was thrilled to see because I read that years ago. It's by Lytton Strachey. It uh, was published in 1918. Um, it's a very 
elegant collection of five short, pithy biographies right. of, I wrote it down, Cardinal Manning, Florence Nightingale, Thomas Arnold, and General Gordon. I would argue 99% of people have heard of Florence Nightingale and no one else on that list. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe that's a, I'm exaggerating. But right. It was Cardinal Manning. Florence Nightingale, General Gordon. Who's the other guy? Thomas Arnold, who Thomas is the Arnold. Yeah, it's okay. education yeah, 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 yeah. Rugby. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So, so I was, um, I was struck by the recurrence of Victorians. Yeah. And I thought "Eminent Victorians" was probably a good title for this entire your entire episode of this podcast. <laughs> actually, I felt like um, Chris White's and his "Eminent Victorians." Well, so I think we're so I'm in college now, and I'm coming to this stuff. And my uh, director of studies, who I idolized. Um, uh, was uh, Eric Griffiths, who mm-hmm. specialized in Victorian poetry. Mm-hmm. So uh, 19th century literature was was big on my radar. And now I am beginning to pull out of Dickensian influence. Because in uh-huh. the thing about Lytton Strachey? 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 I don't know. I, don't know. I thought it was a mm. yeah, hard, um, hard K, I thought. No, anyway. He is really brutally dismantling the Victorian... Mm-hmm myth yeah uh, but in a very um, ironic and um, elegant beautifully mannered way mm-hmm. so you might read it uh, with the notion that you are uh, reading a kind of beautifully penned account of things uh, as as they were mm-hmm. but behind it I think is um, a, a really um, Cynical, and I seem to be overusing that word in this. Uh, no, not at all. Episode uh, 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 attitude towards what these people really represented, and right. and, um, and so you know, again, my memory of things is not as great as it should be, but um, but the sort of uh, the 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 sainthood of Florence Nightingale, the the um, the bravery of General Gordon, his bravery isn't questioned. But his sense is, I right. think, yeah. uh, Matthew Arnold's attitudes for his education, um, and and the sort of uh, Cardinal Manning and, and the the I guess the struggle of uh, of the question of whether people are going to return to Catholicism, mm-hmm. of Anglo-Catholicism, all of that stuff is thrown into question. Yeah, in a really it's also, way. I agree. I, I was struck by it because I haven't read it for years, but I did read it, and I do remember thinking it was so. Um, it called into question also the whole idea of biography. It's not just mm. that it held up. It's not just that it questioned four established pillars of the Victorian um, hierarchy mm-hmm. or system of the empire. It was also it also questioned the hagiographies that I guess had existed right. until then. It was the first time anyone had dared to a write a biography that was this small. I think really, or, or at least yeah. delivered them all in a volume. And in a way that did seem to me question the whole idea of what it is to tell a life story and what it is to leave a a myth of yourself behind and Mm -hmm. then have someone question that myth in, as you say, a a deftly cynical way. Yeah, absolutely. I do think even the title is is kind of uh, loaded. Right. Uh, because it doesn't say that they are deservedly eminent. It's right. just the fact that they're they're there. They're it's true. It's great. uh, uh, Up there. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, there's an aspect of that catchphrase. I'll just leave this here, kind of thing. Where <laughs> you sort of, um, uh, it's true. Kind of um, 
I mean, if Florence Nightingale emerges from this, if this were the only uh, evidence you have for it, it would just seem like a nut burger. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that, um, gosh, I can remember, that one of the things I can remember very clearly, one of the sort of passages is, is in the general bit on General Gordon where they're describing the, uh, I think it was the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, anyway, it was a guy who was convinced that he was the reincarnation of Christ. And millions died because of it. it. And it was just... Gordon thought he was the reincarnation no, of Christ? No, not Gordon. No, someone no. else. No. Well, right, eventually I he see. was killed by the Mahdi who thought he was right. also a messiah. Sure. But this was earlier. Gordon put down the um, this particular rebellion, rebellion mm-hmm. in China. Uh, and um, just the madness of, of, uh, of history right. uh, was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, not kind of interesting. It was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and the... So the the relentless uh questioning of of this uh era and of the sort of uh, upstanding members of this era uh was was really fascinating to me yeah uh, what I was your, what did you study at, at cambridge english was so it? i read english yeah. and um uh mostly it was poetry i i and the real reason for that is that you could read it faster mm-hmm. frankly um, <laughs> like the, i hear that there was one uh you know you, you could you could do a dissertation instead of uh, a paper which is to say you didn't have to read everything you could concentrate on one particular author sure. kind of uh and and i chose that for the 19th century because that's when all the novels were coming around the right. pike right and I, was, I thought like i just, I'll just can't. duck out of that yeah, yeah um so i i did uh, uh a dissertation on byron which would which gets segue to, to john june um but yeah so so a lot a lot of poetry um and uh i i'm only half kidding about the part of, of, of it's being quicker to read I, I do relate entirely to that i got through oxford on largely on poets yeah i mean <laughs> it's there uh and uh but my all of my uh teachers at at trinity cambridge were very close readers mm. uh and and uh and so practical criticism uh it was easier to bring to bear, I think, right. uh, uh, on on poetry. So yeah. that, that was a big part of it. Do you well. still read poetry? Nope. Um, I don't, and I think it's for the same reason that I don't meditate, which is to say it's something that I know, <laughs> you know I should be, be doing, <laughs> um, but that I can always find something uh, less uh, uh, useful to yeah. do. Um, I mean, I think, it, I think it's partly because of the... the uh, the way I was kind of trained up at Cambridge to, you can't just read a poem, you've got to sort of like, you've got to split your mind into two parts, one right. of which is um, sort of open to the ineffable uh, qualities of, of the poetry itself, and the other of which is is uh, scanning for what the, the, the rhyme the, scheme is and the meter. The deeper and, meaning, um, but yeah. And that uh, kind of blows it for me in, in some ways. It's interesting, because I... I think I felt the same way and stopped reading poetry for years and then recently probably in the last five um discovering a whole discovering American poets who were just mm-hmm. entirely neglected by English literature mm-hmm. as as discussed by Oxford University or Christchurch anyway um discovering the m- infinitely more um transparent conversational style of 20th century and Anto- now 21st century American poets mm-hmm. I have found that so liberating. I feel like I can open Mary Oliver and read her mm. and simply let a page of it wash over me 
and be done. I don't feel any wow. need to get to the bottom of her because I feel like everything she's doing is right there on the page. I don't, it doesn't... See, I still, I feel super schizophrenic about it, I gotta say. You do? Yeah. I I, I could read it. I could read a poem and, and just think, well, wait, wait, what have I... What do I, what did I... What did I just read? Um, <laughs> like, shouldn't I bring more tools to bear on it? And then if I were to do that, I would think, no, but I've just sort of taken this thing to bits. Uh, oh, that's funny. I, I gave Mercedes for Christmas, your wife, a copy of this book, Soul. Which mm-hmm. is this beautiful? Oh yeah, yes. It's Did you see it? Yeah, yeah. Um, by a, a poet called Nayira Wahid, and each poem is maybe three lines long. I mean, mm-hmm. they're almost haikus. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you get a paragraph of prose. It sits slam in the middle of the page, and I think I'm right in saying lacks all capital letters. I think there is. Mm-hmm. It's not quite E. Cummings. There's punctuation, but it, there's very little in terms of capitalization. So it makes it immediate it's literally like having a swig of coffee or something mm-hmm. and i for a while had salt in my set bag at work uh, when i was shooting the show and when i felt like i needed a palate mm-hmm. cleanser mm-hmm. <laughs> and i didn't want to get immersed in a novel between takes or something i would just pull right. salt out and read a four-line poem and put it back again and it was it was it was good it was felt good to me to feel back in contact with some sort of so were those poems written in English? Or yes. They, yeah, no, they're all they're not, translated. they're not translated. No, not at all. I, yeah, I mean, I do like a bit of poetry when it sort of comes my way. Like right. every once in a some somehow Rumi like, just like shows up. Yeah, every that'll once do. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Rumi. <a> fortune cookie. <laughs> Rumi's great. Uh, Perfect. She's a, she feels like a modern Rumi. She feels like, listen, I, yeah. I'm not going to hear. I'm not. This is not my job is to coerce you into reading poetry. I so I offer this simply no. in the name of like, oh, I had a good experience with well, um, with some poetry. What I feel in order to like get back. So I spent a lot. You know, I spent a lot of my time with poetry in, in college. That was the deal. Right. For me. And then didn't, uh, and uh, yeah, I could I could do to go to go back to it. I'll tell you it's who I do read is is Fred Seidel. Um, oh, I don't know. Frederick Seidel is an amazing uh, American poet, maybe one of the foremost poets writing now. But he's very specific, and he's he's a friend of mine actually. Oh, really? A friend of my friend of my parents, now a friend of mine. Um, and uh, he writes a very self-aware uh, sort of. Um, somewhat decadent poetry mm-hmm. so it doesn't make the effort uh, towards worthiness that um, Great. a lot of uh, contemporary poetry does to or or, or inaccessibility I need to look that up that he sounds great yeah, yeah I'll give you some of his stuff will you talk to me then about since we're on decadence about Don Juan because this feels like he, yeah. that Don Juan is is, is well, you, no, you tell me. Tell me what Don Juan is the man. He is the um, man. <laughs> I think, uh, well, there's all, of course, there's all his reputation, uh, which is of this kind of uh, bad boy of the 19th century mm-hmm. and, you know, having sex with his half-sister and uh, etc. Um, he, he, so he went to Trinity Cambridge. He went to my college. Oh, you know, he lived I like know that. Uh, uh, in the next court down. Uh, so that's nice that you know he's kind of a, a one of the you know, like pantheon of Trinity poets sure. Andrew Marvell uh, Tennyson um, he's fun that's the thing yeah so uh, and some some of his early stuff isn't because he was still kind of aping and engaging with the um, the forms of the time mm-hmm. uh, but in Don Juan he took so he took a Tavarima with this kind of um, 
uh, abandoned Italian rhyming mm-hmm. uh, uh, A-B-A-B-A-B-C-C for those who are keeping <laughs> score. Um, I'm impressed. Uh, rhyming meter, and he, he it became this incredibly flexible um, way of writing his poetry. He started in Beppo, actually. That's like a, a trial mm-hmm. run, is this, this um, poem Beppo, and then Don Juan, which became... Uh, a multi-volume kind of extensive He took years to write it, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be over ten yeah. years or something. Um, the first two uh, cantos came out in like 18... I actually got a copy. 1818 the one, was the first one. The one um, beautiful old book that I have is uh, uh, a contemporary copy of uh, Cantos 1 and 2, which is like a prized possession. Love. Um, yeah. Um, so it could he could be funny. There, there was a lot of funny rhyming. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, 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 kind of like weak rhymes, which is to say, uh, uh, instead of ending on a on a uh, on a uh, an accent, it ends on an off mm-hmm. beat. So like sputter or stutter, right. you know. Um, and yet there are also incredibly beautiful uh, uh, lines um, in it as well. Mm. So the, there's the sort of texture of it, which is really amazing. Um, and then there's another romantic adventure. There's a great a, adventure. I mean, I'm just talking thematically. Of but it kind of, uh, I guess it sort of uh, squares the circle because it, 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 Don Juan, the character starts as a very naive, uh, sort of innocent uh, youth who heads off on his own adventures uh, and, and soon learns about the world mm-hmm. and um and i mean in, in part that's what the story is about but it's also about everything which is which is great and byron felt free to uh he he was really kind of there was some i'm gonna go and say that there's something postmodern about it which uh-huh. is to say he was breaking the form he was inventing uh a new um way of being able to write about these things right. a, a poetry that could be uh you know at one moment very very serious and and uh and lyric, and at another moment, uh, have the you know caricature, um, body, uh, um, ugliness, right. humor, um, and so to me, it's one of these kind of uh, uh, books that embraces uh, everything and examines everything. And did you at the time? Did, whoa, it was a creaky chair. Sorry. Did you um, when you read it for the first time? Do you remember? I mean, of course, there was you know the immersion in the meter and the in the literary form of it but did did that character speak to a chris at 19 at cambridge yeah for sure i i, I thought so i mean i'm not just the character of byron who i would have liked to be like you know sure. he's very handsome i would have liked to be like Byron, having a good time yeah. and uh scandalous and all that kind of stuff uh, who wouldn't want to see themselves that way um but also the character of don Juan, a character sort of goes out into the world with uh uh uh, a sort of a pure heart uh, and um, is uh, sort of encounters corruption doesn't necessarily become right. corrupted themselves right but uh, goes out into the world and and learns uh, the nature of things uh, that that appeals to me very yeah. much yeah um, and I it's I sort of signed on to it and that's to say I decided to do my dissertation about it um, when most of what I knew was kind of by reputation Mm-hmm. Right, uh, but I uh, found myself really happy to be in this uh, business of thinking a lot about mm-hmm. um, about uh, Don Juan mm-hmm. because it is one of the great works I think, 
and it's it's not forgotten, but people don't. If you were to say, oh, you know, Lord Byron, people just really think of this kind of um, yeah, they think w- of the kind of wanky guy myth. who right, know, sure, less than the, yeah, which less is than the, the artist kind of yeah, that's sort of a load of hooey when you when you stack it up next to Don June, which is a, a very sort of um, deeply thoughtful and intelligent work. You make me want to go back and reread it. I have a feeling I. Mm. Uh, I think I dispensed with Byron Give it a go. in favour of Wordsworth and Frick and Coleridge. Don't even get me started. Um, that last book, which we have probably jumped in terms of order of when you read it, but mm. you might correct me on this, is oh, no. Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Which I was so psyched to see on the list. I was like, at last, and one one less eminent Victorian. Um, talk to me about this. When were yeah. you reading it? And you so, have it here, well, you know, it, it's, I do actually have a copy of it here. Uh, so Gary Gygax, the Dungeon Master's Guide is written by Gary Gygax. I think he had a lot of help of his various kind of um, nerdy uh, acolytes and fellow travelers in terms of the people who made Dungeons and Dragons. That should, I'm talking about one of the rules books for <laughs> for the um, the for advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? Right. And this book was published in 1979. The original right. is 232 pages long. That copy that you have lying there looks considerably slimmer but maybe no i think it's probably made on cheap paper oh, okay. so that's kinda, oh, right. that's right i think okay yeah well so that's as i look through this place. i see um a bunch of charts about the kind of damage that weapons do different spells that spellcasters can um can cast so if you don't know about dungeons and dragons it's basically a game where uh, character you you Players take on these characters, generally drawn from kind of Tolkien-esque fantasy. And there is one guy, or girl, uh, the dungeon master, who walks them through a story and, and presents them with uh, with an adventure, with these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the conflicts in this story, is kind of consensual storytelling, uh, to be meta about it, are resolved with dice based upon any number of charts about, uh, you know, the effects of different spells or... So I literally know nothing. Was it a board game with dice? Well, or was it... no, it's not really a board game because it all goes on in people's heads. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, you do have maps, for instance. Here's a dungeon. I'm showing right. Sonia a dungeon right looks now. Looks quite like a crossword puzzle. Yeah, it looks a bit like a crossword puzzle, but um, it's a map of the, the territory through which the players might go. Here's a list of uh, various... Uh, animals and monsters and where they will be found so that if you want to if you have your characters going through the wilderness you could roll to see what kind of animals they might encounter wow and um, the list is extensive yeah ranging from giant rat to dragon and dragon with, yeah. which is a double n-e i don't know what a dragon is a dragon is a female a, dragon a, a very drag, attractive a drag queen version of a dragon <laughs> <laughs> dragon um and, uh, and here is a list of different kinds of treasure and the magical powers that these things uh, possess. Now, did you flick to these? Do you know everything on every page? No, is I don't. I absolutely enough? don't. Uh, and uh, one of the great sort of things about the game is that you are really free to make up, uh, make it up as you go along. Uh, and, and so the Dungeon Master's Guide is a kind of a source book for the kind of bits of story that you might come up with that you're telling to your... Um, to the players, to the right. adventurers, right? So the reason that this is hugely influential in my life is that it got me used to the idea of telling uh, these stories and of trying to figure out the sort of pacing of stories and you know how to give it some kind of cinematic sweep and what was fun and what was interesting. 
uh, about um, working on stories with people. Um, so that there's kind of a direct line between Dungeons and Dragons and the Dungeon Master's Guide and what I what I do now, really, which I still think you know I I don't do a the. I don't have a real job. I don't have a job that is in any way kind of manly or... So or, the man who's um, been nominated for an Academy Award and just wrote Rogue One. Okay. Yeah, but it's like, you know, the moment the zombie apocalypse hits or the ice caps melt or whatever, there will be no... I mean, I'm with I you. would like to think that they'll say like, oh, we still need storytellers to preserve our ancient <laughs> lore or whatever, and so they won't eat me. But really, I don't know how to do anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, I, I'm, I'm in this very sort of... Uh, 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 old-fashioned method of storytelling mm-hmm. uh you know where you sort of get together with a bunch of people and a, and a camera uh and and it's just incredibly labor-intensive way of ending up with this little bit of story that somebody watches yeah um which is kind of what makes it magical that's abs- I, yeah I, to- absolutely it but is. i don't kid myself for a moment that it is that you know how to build a fire or but no no canvas uh, i try not to think no, about that i'm with you really <laughs> i won't be coming to your house when there's something <laughs> <laughs> you and I can act it out afterwards. Yeah. Once we've found some carpenters. Yeah, we must. Uh, and engineers. Tell, tell the lore. We, we can be in like a traveling. We can travel the wasteland uh, performing. Perfect. Uh, Done. And Athena. The, you the know legend what? of Trump. Athena. Athena will save us. That I know. Um, I have some quick fire questions that I wanted to ask you. Excellent. Just to um, keep this light. What was the last book that made you cry? I don't. You don't. Cry, you just but, don't cry. But the one that I can think of that made me cry, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. dive back into Patrick O'Brien, which was there was um, <laughs> there's a scene in which uh, uh, Jack Aubrey has been arrested for debt, and he has been convicted, and he's put in a pillory uh, in some square in London, wherever it was that they put people are being pilloried, mm-hmm. and there are all of these um, his enemies. Uh, have uh, have arranged for a bunch of bruisers to go and basically beat him while he's stuck there, and right. uh, and um, and his, the entire crew of his ship show up in formation and stand by him. Mm. I'm actually getting a bit worked yeah, up now, which is so sad. It's so to, lovely. Uh, it's to, wonderful. Uh, to protect him. Yeah. And I was very moved by that. Yeah. <laughs> were you moved? Are you, do you remember being moved at the time? Or yes, I moved? was crying. Tears were rolling really? down my face. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, there were a few moments in... in um, Does the audiobook make, bring, bring I it? I don't know. I, don't have to well, I haven't gotten up to that point yet. Okay. Uh, but I think there are a few moments in, in Patrick O'Brien that have made me cry yeah um which yeah it's rather strange the idea of a book making you cry because you're making yourself cry or you are you're you're sort of shuttling somebody else's words through your brain and somehow i agree it's a tall order i mean i'm 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 as i was asking the question was struck that i even come up with it because i was wondering when was the last what was the last book that made me cry i can Mm. think of the last movie or tv show but but um books doing it seems is a is a tall order right um, I mean, King Lear will, will always uh, get me there. But, in but the reading of it? In the reading of it, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, but is that a book? I suppose it's... Yes, you know, that uh, counts. Yeah. Believe yeah. me, that he counts. Um, what's the book you're most ashamed of loving? Oh, wow, I don't... Uh, I may not have a good answer. You may not have good... I don't good think sh- I thought it you know, through properly. about loving, yeah. I don't think I'm ashamed of loving any particular book. I think because... Here's the thing, in our... 
uh, sort of ironic age, uh, you can actually love Get anything away with it. And, and just be like, yeah, that makes me cool. So it's so true. Uh, it's so true. Yeah. So Not I think it. that that no, I mean, I'm fond of of books that other people might see as kind of useless diversions you know Wood, woodhouse i guess no i guess i, I was thinking too of like uh you know there's still some stigma around uh, a self-help book or a book that would oh, you know yeah. guide one i'm thinking for myself too i think part of me is uh, part of me is I- I- ashamed that i used a book to help me get my children to sleep and yet i unapologetically oh, did and works, would man. and yeah yeah uh no i think um well, I do love the life-changing magic of tidying up. Oh, yes, you do. And I feel like maybe do. I should be a little ashamed of that. Um, no, what I love is the new one that's just come out called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah, that I sounds really good. I haven't, may I haven't need hit to, that. I may need to buy that. Yeah. Um, last book you threw across the room, either figuratively or not. I don't... I set them down. I, I've So I, I, I don't allow myself to get genuinely angry because I, I think that would... Uh, imply a degree of engagement whereby I'd actually finished a book. Right. I no longer have uh, resentment against books because I'll just stop. Because right. life is short. Right. Um, and I know that I'm going to die soonish. <laughs> I'm glad um, we got there. <laughs> so really, like, listen, it's all mathematical. At the rate at which I've told you I read, I can't, I just can't. Yeah, that can't, makes sense. I can't that even, sense. in fact. Because I, I will, I used to not, I used to read everything and felt that I had to and it was right. so liberating when I think yeah. it was really recent only about six years ago that I realized I didn't no, have it. to um, but I yeah what's the uh, is there a book or also that you feel guilty about not having read yeah Ulysses yeah I'm right there with you because because that's anathema if you've gone to Trinity College, Cambridge to study English, <laughs> you've not read Ulysses by the end of it, you are basically a sack of shit. <laughs> and you're lying to everyone. Mine propped my window open for an entire year and has got that bulbed look to it yeah. of, of that. But listen, we're doing better than my friend Tim, who I think I'm going to just out him now because it's this many years later, wrote his entire dissertation on Ulysses without having <laughs> just read Just from it. other people's <laughs> critical... That's genius. Uh, Which takes some serious balls. Super, that's super post-mile. Um, very meta of him. Uh, I think I know the answer to this. Kindle, print, audiobook, all of them. Uh, of them. Print and audiobook. Uh, Kindle, I think, actually is great. I like the... I, in theory, I like the idea of being able to carry stuff around with you. And, yeah. and it would help my back because every time I travel, I take too many books and it's yeah. stupid I never end up reading them I always feel like an idiot um, for having carried them but uh, there's something about uh, well first of all in just a piddling way not being able to mark my progress I, I like stopping a book and then more. looking at it yeah. and saying oh I read another quarter inch I agree uh, and um, I like possessing books as physical objects mm. that can be put in places um, me too uh, I've and, come back and to audio books if it, it depends entirely on the reader uh, uh, I'll tell you my favorites. Patrick Tull, who reads the Patrick O'Brien books. Okay. Roy Dotrice, who not only reads Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths, uh-huh. but uh, Game of Thrones, oh, which is kind of cool. Wow. Yeah, and and uh, he he will go there in terms of the number of voices. Great. I was going to say, does he do all the voices? Uh, yeah, registers, uh, accents, Fun. great stuff. Fun. Um, uh, is there a book you wish you'd written? Um, either one that exists or is there a book that in your brain that you wish 
you well, I'll tell you, this is like a side project. I think someone should write a history of parties. Oh, uh, a history, sort of a history right. and and uh, a kind of... Um, uh, it's a great a, idea. A I want to read that book. anatomy of parties. It's always yeah. interested me, although I'm very antisocial, actually. I used to throw parties when I was more drunk. And, um, <laughs> and it always used to interest me the way that they would take shape. Uh-huh. So the anticipation beforehand and the right. fear and then the way they'd take shape and they'd seem to hit a height. Mm-hmm. And then after it, you knew that the party was dying. Yeah. It didn't necessarily mean there were any fewer or more people, but you could feel, feel it. Yes. Uh, and then you knew it was over. Um, and I, it just feels to me like that, that that would be an interesting anthropological study. That's a great idea. I yeah. love that. While you were saying that, it reminded me of it's something, it's one of the many things that um, The Great Gatsby does so extraordinarily, is is anatomize the mm-hmm. life of mm-hmm. a party. Yeah, that's nobody true. writes the dregs of a party better than Fitzgerald, probably that's because true. nobody experienced more of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's I, I'd read that book. Um, is there anything you wish you read more of? Uh, I think, oh, uh, uh, the classics. Uh, not, not that I always know what I mean by that, but I, I do. I am s- s- trying to go back and read the things that I ought to have read in the first place. Hmm. Probably. You're your, going back to Victorians, or did nah, you feel you that? your Russians, uh-huh. maybe. Right. Uh, 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 the, the uh, Greeks and Romans. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it's a bit airy fairy, but I, I do like sort of think about gaps in my education and and uh, whether I'm familiar enough with the sort of foundational texts of civilization and all that stuff. Um, yeah, <laughs> so just, all that stuff. Just tiny life goals. Then, um, are you able to? Are you able to read while you write? I know lots of. I yeah, just can't or don't. I can. I, I be, because I'm usually writing screenplays. I, it it feels different enough that right. I'm not uh, uh, overly influenced uh, by questions of style. Right. That. Um, so that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, what is the book that you know makes you look good when you recommend it? I'm talking the sure fire. You're sitting in a bar. You're reading a book. <laughs> You've brought it really deliberately. You're not married with three kids. Oh, right. You're in a bar. I don't think that there's any book. So the the way that you actually phrased this question and the sheet you gave me was surefire, get laid. Get you laid if you're reading it as a barber. There is no such book. I mean, I think... Chris White's The Book Exists. I think there's a difference between what that book, what the cover of that book would be or or what it sort of implies and and what... um, and what uh, is actually in it, whereby, which is to say, if you could make someone understand just what you you felt about this right. book, it would they would feel an intense uh, connection to right. you. Right, right. Uh, and having said that, I can't really think of one that that would make me look cool to recommend it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Dungeons I and Dungeon Master Guide. Is the one. <laughs> That's the surefire. It's not, not your bar. Late. I don't know. Actually, it depends. Maybe that would be the sort of. Um, that would get you the a Hail Mary kind of, of it, you know? <laughs> Where you're like, hey, this is me. Um, deal with it. Because, you know, it can't be... Obviously, you're not... I, I can think of all kinds of people who are sitting around reading, you know, Fight Club in, in, right. in a bar or... Right. or, or uh, uh, yeah, you're right. It totally is. It's it's the um, it's the homing pigeon you want to attract with that book. So I guess that's the... Yeah. I mean, I did see a book once called The Multi-Orgasmic Man. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> which Done. is like, Done. I think the, 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 the subtitle was something like, you know, how to, uh, how to live with, um, with multi-orgasmic women. Yeah. That's one exhausted like how, woman. How to cope with being uh, a multi-orgasmic man. And That's... like, I think that the, the, in the first chapter, of course I checked it out in the bookstore. Um, like you, you had to give a warning to the woman uh-huh. that you were a multi-orgasmic man yeah, instead of like just be ready yeah you did <laughs> that requires a badge and a t-shirt and a beanie i think um you get to take one book to your desert island what is it yeah well it's gotta be it's gotta be complete shakespeare i think okay yeah you know, I, I I thought about this because do you get after ten years is the possibility of being removed from the island? No, no, no. It's that's a lifetime yes, sentence. Uh, um, part of me is tempted to, as Desert Island Discs does, which was sort of my inspiration for this entire podcast. If Desert Island Discs gives you the entire works of Shakespeare and then offers oh, you, get, you right, you get the Bible. You as get well, the Bible, the works of Shakespeare, and uh, and one luxury object. I decided to dispense with the Bible in this day and age, and I and I for reasons of my own. And I felt like the show works of Shakespeare was a cheat, but yeah. maybe I'll give it to you and then okay. you can have another well, one. Well, I, I also thought uh, La Russe Gastronomique. Oh, you inspired. Know. <laughs> it's really long. There's a lot of stuff in it. I mean, it, that inspired. might be incredible torture because it describes all kinds of uh, yeah, dishes. Yeah, but, but it might actually make things. you a little more resourceful on there, too. Perhaps it would. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I could, like... Um, I mean, it would be a cheat to say like Encyclopedia Britannica because uh, no, you uh, can take it. Uh, uh, well, do you just get one volume? Like you get one volume, you can just choose. You've got to choose on. I'd vote through Abelard. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll st- then I'll say Lurie's Gastronomy. Why not? I think it's brilliant. It's an admirable book. Um, Chris, you have made this such a pleasure. Thank uh, you so, thanks. so much. <laughs> Truly, this was wonderful. And I can't think of a lovelier start to my podcast. Hooray. Thank you for being my first uh, guest. Subscribe. Uh, subscribe, please. sign up, read. Uh, yes, TBD. That was Chris White's, and you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share one of the interviews on social media, send someone an email to tell them you liked it, send someone a handwritten note, send them a homing pigeon, just get your friends to listen. All of the music is created by my multi-talented husband, Davy Holmes. Our producer is Joe Batanz. And a special thanks to Chris for being a true friend willing to be my guinea pig on this first episode. Join us next week for my interview with my good friend, the wonderful actress, Felicity Huffman. Mm-hmm.